The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 22. We Tray Bong. We left for Paris on a Sunday morning. Charlie did his usual trick of almost missing the boat train, and it was only when we got to Dover that we realised he'd travelled down in the guard's van, as per usual. Charlie had been to call on Hetty Kelly to tell her that he was going to Paris, only to be told by her sister that Hetty herself was there already with the Bert Coots Yankee Doodle dancers, so he was aflame with romantic imaginings. He didn't keep them to himself either, while the rest of us tried to while away the crossing playing cards. "'The most romantic city in the world,' he kept sighing. "'It can hardly fail.' The late autumn weather was filthy, with heavy rain keeping everyone below decks, and our first view of the continent was through a foggy curtain of water. The outlook was hardly more thrilling on the train journey from Calais, as the countryside was flat and uninteresting, and the rain grimly persistent. Charlie's excited chatter continued unaffected, however, and to tell the truth, as we approached Paris, I began to feel a little thrill myself. We saw a golden luminescence lighting the underside of the rain clouds in the distance, and Charlie pressed his nose against the window. "'Is that it, do you think?' he asked. "'There? There? Is it?' "'Oui, oui, c'est Paris,' said a French gentleman sitting nearby without looking up from his newspaper, using the tone of voice a parent might use to a child he's already told several times to sit still and be quiet. "'Oui, Trey bong!' Charlie exclaimed. When Ernie and I wrinkled our noses in puzzlement, he launched into a song, inviting us to join in as if we must know it. Hip hooray, let's be gay, boom didier, ta-ra-ra, to each little Frenchy dove, standing drinks and making love, we fairly mash the ladies with our wee tray bong. Sit down, you idiot, I said, before you destroy the entente cordiale completely. On the short drive from the Gare du Nord to the small hotel where we were to stay on the Rue Geoffroy Marie, Charlie was once again a bundle of energy. Look, he cried, pointing at some cafe or building, just like a Pissarro. I'm, I'm getting out and walking. Just wait, can't you, I said. If you start walking, you won't know where the place is. The place, when we got to it, was enough to dampen even Charlie's enthusiasm. Small rooms with freezing cold stone floors like cells in a monastery. The Bastille, Charlie called it, and it was a great incentive to get out and about. Charlie was quickly dressed up to the nines and knocking impatiently on my door. I myself only ever had the capacity to dress up to the sevens, maybe seven and a halfs at the outside, but enough to pass muster. The two of us stepped out and strolled over to the Folie Bergère, where we were to catch the Sunday night performance, before starting in ourselves on the Monday. And it was quite an eye-opener, I can tell you, after the months of traipsing round the ale-drenched halls of northern England, to set foot in the thick, carpeted foyer of the Folie Bergère. You never saw such a glamorous place in all your life. An orchestra played as gorgeous ladies checked their wraps and fur coats, bearing their creamy white shoulders. Huge mirrors and vast chandeliers made the room twinkle, and it seemed somehow that we'd arrived at the very centre of the whole world. We climbed a plush staircase to the promenade of the dress circle, where bejeweled Indian princes in their pink and blue turbans, and military officers of all nationalities, it seemed, French, Turkish, British, in their peacock uniforms and plumed helmets, had congregated to watch the world go by. And you could get good old British bass ale there, too. It was like a vision of heaven. We ventured into the theatre to get a flavour of the entertainment, which was as different from a night at an English music hall as champagne is to ale, although, as I say, you could get ale. Women, women, dancing girls, flesh, quivering, wobbling, girls moving or in teasing tableau, as far as the eye could see. In one number, the dancing girls were wearing flesh-coloured body stockings, which left nothing to the imagination, except, obviously, what they looked like without the flesh-coloured body stockings on. 
In another, an alluring array of female pulchritude twinkled and glittered behind giant feather fans on a huge glass and gilt staircase. In between these fleshy parades there were turns, musical and comical. I felt a little sorry for one act in particular, a tall, loose-limbed youth of about my age, who came on to do a few wistful and melodic numbers by himself. A solo male singer stood very little chance of holding the crowd's attention after dozens of scantily clad girls had just departed the scene, and although he actually had a thoroughly tuneful and agreeable singing voice, the place simply emptied in front of his eyes as he warbled away about this and that, and occasionally the other. More successful at holding the audience in their seats was a sketch by the celebrated local comedian Max Linder. He cut a dapper figure in his forlorn pursuit of a lady with his louche moustache and his sleepy eyes and although I could not follow the dialogue, I picked up enough to be impressed. The headline act was a familiar figure, none other than little Titch himself. Titch was a huge star in our home country, of course. Mary Lloyd used to say that the only people she would ever share top billing with were George Roby and little Titch, but in Paris, well, he was a god. For this engagement at the Folie Bergère, he had chosen not to employ his usual bag of tricks, not even the trademark Big Boots, Instead, he hurled himself onto the stage dressed as a grand lady in a glamorous court dress with a long train. Je m'appelle Clarisse, he cried, and proceeded to chatter away in a mixture of French and English, both with his strangely deep-voiced Kentish accent, while waving a large feathery fan and becoming inextricably tangled up in his costume. His act was, as always, grotesque yet perfect, filled with little touches and movements that kept the place in gales of laughter as the miniature lady tried to hang on to her dignity. The little genius climaxed his spot with a wicked gnome parody of a dancer called Laloy Fuller, who had earlier that evening cavorted around the place in a sheet with tremendous po-faced seriousness, and whom we later became accustomed to seeing in the wings, seething. Charlie and I hurried around backstage at the end of the show, he ostensibly to seek news of Hetty, and I because, well, backstage seemed like it might be a pleasant place to pass the time. The magic word Carno gained us access, and Charlie scurried off to quiz some of the regulars while I loafed against a wall in a corridor, smoking, watching the comings and goings. Dancing girls thronged, completely uninhibited by my presence. Indeed, I picked up a number of appraising glances, and seemed to be the object of some finger-waving from one group in particular, who were offering, through the international language of mime, to treat me to a drink, and more besides. I straightened myself up and headed in their direction. Just then, however, there was a tremendous screeching from one of the other dressing rooms, and the gangly singer I had felt sorry for earlier suddenly bolted from a doorway ahead of me, followed by a bottle of champagne, held with great force by someone inside. It hit the corridor wall right by my head, and smashed, drenching me from head to foot. Out of the room then shot a little whirlwind of a red-faced Frenchwoman, who continued a screamed tirade at the young singer, while he cowered on the floor with his knees up to his chin, waiting for the storm to pass. The woman punctuated her shrieks with angry kicks and slaps, and finally blew herself furiously up the stairs and out into the street. Faces, and more besides, disappeared back into dressing rooms, and the young singer picked himself up and dusted himself down. "'Ah, mon ami, je suis désolé, désolé!' he cried, when he saw that I was A, soaked in fizzy stuff, and B, covered in broken glass. "'All right, it's all right,' I said, trying gingerly to brush the debris off. "'Oh, you are English,' the singer said. "'I apologise a thousand times, sir. "'Marguerite, she is...' "'His English let him down, and he gave a miserably eloquent shrug. "'Come, come.' "'He showed me into his dressing-room, "'and positively insisted that I borrow one of his jackets, "'which fitted me well enough, "'and was something of a step up on the one I had been wearing, truth to tell, "'and then he led me out to the dress-circle bar "'where he furnished us both with a drink.' 
I am Maurice, he introduced himself. Maurice Chevalier. Pleased to meet you, I said. I'm Arthur Dando, with the Fred Carno Company. "'Ah!' Chevalier cried. "'But you will do very well here, I think. "'Above all, the audience loves spectacle. "'Dance et sport. "'Sketches, I mean. "'Anything where there is lots and lots to look at.' "'Here he made a little firework display with his fingers. "'For me, it is different,' he went on. "'I am just one man. "'The manager, Monsieur Banel, he likes me, "'but the critics, not so much, "'and the crowd, well, who wants to hear a sad song "'when there are so many pretty girls to look at?' "'Thank heavens for them,' I said.' "'Indeed, my friend,' Maurice said, raising a glass to that sentiment. "'Perhaps you should find yourself a sketch,' I suggested, like Max Linder. Just then Charlie came into the bar looking dejected, which is to say he looked like someone doing a pantomime of the word dejected, scuffing his feet on the carpet. I beckoned him over and introduced him to Maurice, but Charlie was barely able to force a smile. "'Whatever's wrong?' I asked. "'Hetty's troupe, the Bert Coots dancers. They were here last week.' "'I remember them,' Maurice nodded. "'The Yankee Doodle Doodle girls, no?' "'That's right,' Charlie agreed mournfully. "'They left yesterday.' "'Well, perhaps they haven't gone too far,' I said, "'thinking they might still be playing somewhere in Paris.' "'Huh!' Charlie grunted. "'They've gone to Moscow.' "'Oh, and you lack one of these little girls,' Maurice sighed. "'Charlie nodded glumly. "'Ah, what are we poor fellows to do? "'Your girl is in Moscow, and mine throws a bottle at my head "'if I even look at one of the dancers. "'What am I supposed to do? "'Wear a blindfold backstage? "'The naked ladies are everywhere!' Charlie and I smirked at this like schoolboys. "'And what about you, mon ami?' Maurice said, patting me on the shoulder. "'Is a woman making of your life a misery also?' Before I could reply, Charlie butted in, flapping a hand dismissively. "'Eh, he had a girl, but he's lost her.' Maurice looked stricken. His hand flew to his mouth. He assumed the tone you assume when questioning the recently bereaved. "'I am, I am so very sorry. How did this happen? "'No, no, no, no. She's not dead. He's lost her. He doesn't know where she is.' "'Ah, I see. Well, in that case, let me introduce you to an old acquaintance of mine, Mademoiselle Absinthe.' "'You'll have heard, no doubt, the ancient crumbling witticism that Absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. "'It certainly makes the time pass agreeably, although I must admit I can't remember a great deal more about that first week for some reason. "'Seriously, though, I do recall that Charlie would take every opportunity to watch Max Linder's act. "'He liked, as we all did, Max's on-stage persona, the hopeless romantic optimist.' but he was chiefly fascinated by Max's success with the films he was making for Pathé Frere. He dragged me along to see a couple of Max's short features one afternoon, in a right flea-pit of a Parisian cinema, it has to be said, and the comedy was agreeable enough, but not a patch on watching Max on stage at the Folly, in my view. In the bar after the evening performances, Charlie would corner Max and interrogate him about the art of cinematical performance, as he insisted on calling it, trying to get his new friend to agree that cinema could be every bit as artistically satisfying as the theatre. Max would just smile and wink at the gaggle of beautiful ladies who would clamour for his attention. There were plenty of distractions for a group of young men at the Folie Bergère, and some took enthusiastic advantage, particularly Ernie Stone, who could barely open his eyes to do the show by the Friday. Some of us, though, preferred to venture out into Paris and sample the nightlife, and Maurice was an effervescent and energetic guide. I think he was partly driven to stay out all night by the desire to avoid the alternative, which was being harangued some more by the fearsome Marguerite. Charlie, meanwhile, was looking for romance. One evening we were idly watching the ladies promenading in the circle bar. Charlie and I were wearing our mummingbird stage costumes, he the drunken swell and I the prestidigitateur, and in consequence may have appeared to be rather more prosperous than was actually the case. 
whatever, one of the more than usually spectacular ladies fluttered her eyelashes at young Charles as she glided past, and then languidly let a long white glove fall to the floor as she began to make her stately way up the staircase. Charlie leapt to his feet to retrieve it for her, a knight in shiny armour, and he flashed his most winning smile, the one with all the teeth, you've seen it, as he handed it back, no doubt accompanied by some gushing compliment. Maurice and I could see that she didn't have a clue what Charlie was saying, and he came trotting back to us to enlist our friend's help as she swanned out of sight. Maurice, he gasped, this dame arouses my concupiscence. I beg your pardon, I said, choking on my drink. She, you know, she's very... isn't she, though? You like this girl? Maurice said. Charlie did an irritating little mime in which he was both himself and Cupid, and showed us the little arrow striking him in the heart. "'You like this girl?' Maurice said again, deadpan. "'We! Trey Bong!' Charlie said. "'Now, can you write me some lines on a card in French so that I may...' Maurice understood and turned the corners of his mouth down as he nodded, a very French-looking gesture. "'Caught her as a, a lady of her elegance deserves to be courted.' Uh, "'But of course,' Maurice said, businesslike, borrowing a little pad and pencil from a passing waiter. "'What would you like to say?' "'I have loved you from the very first moment I saw you,' Charlie said. I was taking another sip at that moment, unfortunately, and some cognac went up my nose. Maurice frowned. "'Vraiment? You want to say that to this girl?' "'Yes, yes. Also right. I adore you. You are a bright, shining star, illuminating the firmament.' "'Very well.' Maurice shrugged and scribbled at the same time, a French thing. But if you like, I can arrange this for you very easily. Really? Charlie said. Arrange what? Arrange a, a liaison with this girl. Oh, that would be very... I mean, yes, yes, go, go, we, oui, Trey Bong. Off Maurice trotted in the wake of the goddess in question, while Charlie clutched his little cue cards nervously. So, I said, you're finally going to dip your toe in the water? This is the most romantic city in the world, Charlie replied, and I am in the mood for romance. Shortly Maurice returned. All is set, Charles. She will await you in the foyer at the end of the performance. Mon ami, Charlie cried and kissed Maurice on both cheeks before indulging in a little jig of joy and excitement. I must go and prepare. He put one finger to his lips as if miming thoughtfulness. I need to buy some flowers, of course. Adieu, my friends. Wish me luck. This could be the start of one of the grand romances of our time. He skipped off towards the great gilt staircase that led out to the main entrance. I watched him go, then turned to Maurice. So it was just that easy to arrange a liaison for our friend? Maurice shrugged and signalled the barmaid for a top-up. But of course, he said, I just hope he can afford her. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chapter 23. La Vence Renversante. 
At the end of the first week, Little Titch's stint as the headline act was to end. On his last night, an extraordinary thing happened. As Titch took his final curtain call, a man in a black cloak leapt to his feet, clambered up onto the apron, and waved a broad-brimmed black hat about his head, shouting, "'Get up, all of you, on your feet! Pay homage to the world's greatest artist! A genius, greater than Irving, greater than Lautrec!' The audience duly rose to their feet in a standing ovation, and in the wings I turned to Maurice, who was joining in the applause, my whole face a question. "'It is Lucien Guitry,' he confided as the cheers rose to the rafters. "'He is the greatest actor in all of France.' Eventually, Guitry waved the crowd's acclaim to a hush and kissed little Titch on both cheeks. He had to kneel to accomplish this, looking rather like an emotional father reunited with a long-lost child, and while down there on his knees he begged— Please, Maitre, do not leave us without letting us see one more time. The big boots! A roar of delight went up. Big boots! Big boots! And what could Titch do but oblige? He sent for his great, flat, narrow, clacking wooden shoes and performed his extraordinary acrobatic routine, knocking his hat off, then leaning right forward to grab it. It culminated as ever in a cheeky wink, and then the mischievous dwarf rose right up onto his toes until he was nearly seven feet tall, to a tumultuous ovation. Charlie was utterly enchanted by all this. The very French notion that a music hall entertainer could actually be acclaimed an artist, a genius even, seemed to strike a deep chord within him. Yes, over-modesty was never a flaw of Mr Chaplin's. He practised one of Titch's moves, the one in which, in order to keep his toes clear of the stage, he would be obliged to change direction with a sort of swivel of the hips while his feet were level with his waist, until he had perfected his own variation on it. You'll have seen Charlie do it many times if you've seen his films, which I don't doubt that you have. In fact, it's not too fanciful to suggest that Charlie's little tramp was germinated on that trip to Paris. If he took the physicality of little Titch and mixed it with the hopeless romanticism of Max Linder, you wouldn't be too far off, I reckon. Whether that's fair or not, Charlie's later success did end up making life difficult for old Titch at the Follies, by the way. Once Charlot made his name on the silver screen, the word, somehow, went out that little Titch had actually stolen Chaplin's act, and the Parisian crowds, incredibly, began to boo him. Broke his heart. Little Titch's replacement for the following weeks was a singer, a great favourite, returning from out of town for a new long-term residency at the Folies. She arrived trailing an entourage of at least 30 dancers and sundry other hangers-on, as befitted the greatest star in France at that time. Her act was a spectacular affair, all top hats, fans and feathers, carefully choreographed so as to direct all eyes towards the irresistibly glittering bauble at the centre. Her name? Miss Danguette. Right away you could see that Maurice was smitten, not deterred by the fact that the lady was a good fifteen years his senior, nor that there were significantly easier pickings to be had amongst her dancing chorus, all of whom had seemingly been selected for their lustrous dark hair. He hung on Miss Danguette's every word, and followed her around the place, like a puppy with its tongue hanging out. If she wanted a drink, or a chair, or a newspaper, so she could bask in her own brilliant reviews, then Maurice would scamper off to fetch it. In the circle bar after the show she would be surrounded by fawning admirers, some of whom were from the finest families in Europe, and poor Maurice would be condemned to the fringes of her circle, summoned occasionally to fetch and carry, while Miss Danguette herself would continue to bathe in compliments and turn her radiance on the world. The front-runner, when it came to competing for Miss Danguette's attentions, was a rather po-faced chap in a fancy military uniform, one of those with brushes on the shoulders, whose face, adorned by a twiddly little twirling moustache, seemed to be incapable of smiling. 
This, as you can imagine, is not a characteristic designed to endear a fellow to a bunch of comedians at the best of times, and we all loathed him heartily. The chap's name was Alfonso, if you please, and yes, all right, he was the King of Spain. Night after night we'd sit with Maurice, watching this creature fawn solemnly over Miss Tanguette, vainly trying to make our friend see that he stood no chance, and to drag him off to the revels we'd enjoyed previously, but he was having none of it, not wishing to miss a moment in her company. Charlie was vicariously thrilled by Maurice's romantic infatuation at first, but after a while even he began to drift off to find diversion elsewhere. He began to pursue a secret amour of his own, pitching woo, as he was wont to call it, encouraged by his new acquaintance, the debonair romantic Max Linder. We took a rise out of Charlie whenever we could, saying we hoped he could afford her, and so forth, and wondering what the etiquette for leaving a tip might be, and so it probably wasn't surprising that he kept the details of his activities more or less entirely to himself. Ernie Stone discovered then that Charlie had struck up a rapport with one of Miss Tanguette's chansonnettes, and we pretty much lost interest. Whoever it was that said, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise, well, they were on to something. Anyway, one heady evening, things turned decisively in Maurice's favour. Miss Tanguette was holding court, as usual, in the long circle bar. Champagne was flowing, and everyone was laughing and relaxing, except, that is, the tightly buttoned-up King Alfonso Thirteenth of Spain. The orchestra in the foyer began to play a jaunty little waltz, and Miss Tanguette raised her head like a hound picking up a scent, and held out her hand alluringly to her bow. Dance avec moi, Alphonse, she sighed. Alfonso was not keen, it seemed, to make a public spectacle of himself, even for la belle Miss Tanguette. He remained bolt upright with his hands behind his back. Mademoiselle, he began, si on veut danser, je... His Majesty's French wasn't up to it, and he began again in English. Uh, mademoiselle, if you wish to dance, I shall throw you a ball, the splendour of which you have never seen the like of which. Non, Miss Tanguette cried petulantly. Ici, maintenant. Chevalier leapt to his feet as though an electric shock had been passed through his chair. He stepped forward, clicked his heels, and offered the fabulous Miss Tanguette his hand. Enchanté, he said, and stood trembling before her like a man at the edge of a chasm. The gorgeous creature looked at the long chevalier for a long moment, and a smile began to play about her lips. She slowly laid her hand on his, then watched as he bowed low. You could see her wondering what she was letting herself in for. The music reached the end of a phrase, and as it began a new sequence, Chevalier suddenly reached forward, snaked a long arm around La Belle Mistanguette's waist, and swung her bodily around, and then held on for dear life as Chevalier galloped frantic circles around the room on his great long legs. One, two, three. One, two, three. He'd clearly decided to seize the moment and give Miss Tanguette a dance she would never forget. People at other tables jumped to their feet to watch, clapping their hands and laughing, and Miss Tanguette's big skirts swept their chairs aside, sending bottles and glasses flying. A waiter came scurrying over to start clearing up, and just as he bent to start sweeping up some broken glass into a dustpan, around came the whirling, swirling couple again and sent him sprawling. The crowd hooted with glee and pressed themselves against the walls to keep clear of the mayhem. Chevalier and Miss Tanguette, locked together now, bounced giddily off the bar, and a champagne bottle was dislodged by the impact and sent rolling towards the edge. Round and round they spun without tiring, and you began to feel like they would never bring the dance to an end. Certainly Chevalier showed no inclination to release Miss Tanguette now he had her in his arms, and she was not complaining either. I found myself standing next to Monsieur Banel, the manager, who had tears of laughter streaming down his face. "'Hey, monsieur,' I said, "'how do you like this new sketch of Chevalier's? Not bad, eh?' 
I saw surprise, then calculation, then delight flit across his features, before he waved the orchestra to finish and embraced the couple who had come to a standstill in the middle of the room. Magnifique! Banel cried, mopping at his face with a big white kerchief, as my friend the interpreter whispered, Magnificent! Mistanguette Chevalier Ensemble! Ça sera une sensation! Banel beamed, and you could almost see his mouth watering at the prospect of putting this spectacle on his stage. The two dancers were still holding on to each other and gazing into each other's eyes, panting, oblivious. Banel turned and led the tumultuous applause which suddenly broke out, before urgently ushering his staff to begin to clear up the debris. King Alfonso Thirteenth of Spain, meanwhile, was tight-lipped, bitterly regretting not seizing the moment. The two lovebirds began work on their new sketch the very next day, and by the beginning of the week following it was ready to make its debut at the Folly. I didn't see much of Maurice during that time although whenever I did, he was effusive in his gratitude for my having suggested to Banal that the wildly energetic dance would make a fine comic routine. The sketch, entitled La Vence Renversante, was an immediate triumph, a succès d'estime. They worked it up so that the two main characters, absorbed only in the dance and their besotted devotion to one another, danced obliviously around a set which was like the foyer of a grand hotel. They smashed and overturned furniture, discombobulated the hotel staff and guests as they passed to and fro, with great timing and finesse, actually, and finished up with a brilliant coup, whereby they rolled themselves entirely up in the carpet, still dancing, leaving just their heads sticking out of the top of the roll for the last chords of the music. It was a sure thing, you could tell the first time you saw it, and the thing that really sold it above all was that you could see right off that Maurice and Miss Danguette had fallen for each other and weren't just putting it on for the act, and a Parisian crowd loves a real-life romance almost as much as it loves looking at semi-naked ladies. As their first week wore on, it seemed to take them longer and longer to unroll themselves from the carpet for their bow, as they were unwilling to disengage from the embrace, until one night the curtain went down with them still wrapped up together, the audience cheering and hooting. Afterwards, I asked Maurice what had happened. We could not unravel because of my embarrassment to be so close to that ravishing creature, you understand. Surely you could have hidden your embarrassment, I said, with a, with a, with a bow, or perhaps your hat. Yes, perhaps, he agreed solemnly, if only I could persuade her to let go of it. <laughs> Back to the first night they performed it, and of course they were thrilled. Banel was delighted that his faith in Chevalier had been vindicated, and there was much backslapping and cheek-embracing all round. Max Linder, beaming with pleasure for his friend, kissed Maurice on both cheeks. Pas seulement la voix, eh? mais aussi le corps magnifique, he cried. Célébration, Miss Danguette declared above the hubbub, and the whole party decamped to a fancy restaurant a few streets away, which in my memory is illuminated in gold by three massive chandeliers. There was some sneaking out by the stage door, too, because Miss Danguette wished to avoid the attentions of King Alfonso Thirteenth, and Maurice had not been home to Mad Marguerite for a week and a half. The huge room was packed with the fashionable Beaumont, with barely a spare seat anywhere, but somehow the appearance of Miss Danguette galvanised about twenty waiters into action, and we were all shortly seated at a massive table created from numerous others that had been pushed together and covered in new white tablecloths. Before long, the champagne and bonhomie were flowing in broadly equal measure, and we were getting on the outside of some huge platters of shellfish, which were served on what seemed to be upturned bin lids. Suddenly Maurice hissed, "'Look, it's Charlie!' And indeed, there, on the far side of the room, was young Mr Chaplin, enjoying a tete-a-tete -tete with a young lady. Maurice hailed him at top volume. "'Hey, Charlie! Ho!' Charlie looked pretty shocked to see us. 
He said something to his dinner companion who was sitting with her back to us. She had long black hair curled into ringlets, so I gathered, even in my champagne and cognac-fuddled state, that this was probably one of Miss Danguette's chorus girls. "'Come!' Maurice shouted. "'Join the party!' Charlie put his hand up to say that no, he and his paramour were just fine over there, but it was Maurice's night, and he was not taking no for an answer. "'Come on, both of you, I insist!' he cried, as he got up and in a handful of gangling strides crossed the restaurant to Charlie's table. I was leaning drunkenly over the back of my chair, giggling at Charlie's discomfiture. Miss Danguette, now, full of the joys of life, saw her new young lover had left her side and peered around for him. "'Tell them!' Maurice shouted to her, across the heads of a number of late diners, some of whom were irritated to be disturbed by this boorishness, while others seemed to be enjoying the little free cabaret, as I was. "'Tell them they must join us! This is our night! The night for celebration!' "'Qui est?' Miss Danguette called. "'C'est Charlie!' Maurice called back, indicating with his open hands. Et sa jolie demoiselle. Mathilde, mais elle doit être ici avec nous. Mathilde, Mathilde, à moi, vite, vite. Charlie's companion could hardly refuse such an insistent invitation from her distinguished employer, and so she turned to face us. The busy chatter of the restaurant seemed to retreat suddenly, leaving only the pounding of my own blood in my ears. It was Tilly Beckett. <laughs> Mm-hmm.